Hello, I'm Peter Baxter. As editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology, it's a great pleasure to introduce this podcast. In it, we'll be discussing the paper titled Improving Attitudes Towards Children with Disabilities in a School Context, a Cluster Randomized Intervention Study, which is by Godot et al. from the Research Unit on Perinatal Epidemiology, Toulouse University. It's published in the October issue of the journal, accompanied by a commentary written by Professor Rosenbaum. It's going to be discussed by Dr. Godot herself from Toulouse and by Professor Rosenbaum, who is a professor of paediatrics and developmental paediatrics at McMaster Hamilton, Ontario. Can we please start with you, Dr. Godot, to discuss the background? There was a new law in France in February 2005 entitled For Equality of Rights and Chances for Disabled People. And in that law, there are many aspects, but one that is very important to us, to our research team, was around uh, schooling of disabled children. That law says that all children, whatever their chronic conditions, have the right to be registered in their local school. So in this law, inclusive education is presented as the goal to achieve. Plus, there is a strong enforcement of this law by the Ministry of Education, but on a quantitative point of view. And one specificity of the French system is that not all children have a full mainstream education. Some children, and mostly those with mental and psychiatric disorders, go to special education units, that is, small classes that are inside a regular school, and they only share some activities with the non-disabled kids, depending on their level and capacities. So this makes our system rather specific. But in all cases, there weren't any study in France around the topic of mainstream schooling of disabled children and no other studies on their social inclusion and its determinants. So this is why we decided to work on that topic. Thank you. Would you mind summarizing how you did it? that you used the catch, didn't you? Um, what does that measure? When we started to work on that topic, we found out that there was no instrument in France to work on attitudes. So we undertook a literature review, and out of the 19 tools we reviewed, only one was found suitable for our purpose, and it was the Chadwick McMaster Attitudes Toward Children Scale, called the Catch Scale. And that was developed by Peter Rosenbaum. And why was it good for us? Because it could be used in the school survey for teenagers and because that's the only tool that measures the three components of attitudes simultaneously. That is affective, behavioral, and cognitive. Would you mind briefly summarizing the outcome of the study? First, we found that some factors are significantly associated to attitudes as others have found, that is, associated to more positive attitudes are gender, girls are more prone to disabled kids, to have a friend with, with a disability, to have for the respondent a good quality of life, and to have had information on disability, either from parents or from medias. And we found linked to more negative attitudes the fact to belong to a school with a special education unit. That was the first findings of our study. Then the second findings were about the, the impact of our action, the action we measured that I can describe later. 
we didn't find any impact of the action that was conducted in class when comparing intervention and control groups. But we did find an overall improvement of attitudes between October, that's the beginning of the school year, and June in both groups, control and intervention. Thank you. Peter, do you want to comment on the study and, and the results from it? Well, I find this really very compelling and exciting work. It's quite interesting that we did a lot of thinking about children's attitudes toward disability in the early 80s and published some papers, and then it seemed as though the whole topic went quiet for a long time. But in the past couple of years, maybe three years, we've had a lot of people writing to us and wanting to have copies of our measures, to use our measures, and so on, as if the topic has been rediscovered, which I find very exciting. I think the big challenge remains to understand better what it is that typical children understand and think about children with disabilities. We did not do that in our early work in developing the measure that uh, Emmanuel has used, and I think there is room for qualitative studies which help us to understand how best to introduce and orient typical children to functional difference. How does this study help with that? Well, I think I'm not sure that the study helps with that particular thing. I think my comment is provoked in part by a feeling that we still need to, probably need to spend more time helping typical children to understand how they should behave how they should think about things. We came to this late in the day in our work 25 years ago by thinking that if we simply educated and informed typical children about disability, they would automatically behave differently. And that doesn't seem to be the case. And, and as we thought about it after the fact, it may well be because we haven't helped typical children to know what they should be doing, how they should behave. They may be better informed about disability at a cognitive level, but at a feeling level and at a behavioral level, we may not have equipped them to know what they should be doing. And that, I think, would be worth trying to do. And that's what came out in the study, wasn't it, Dr. Goddard? The cognitive domain was the one that showed the biggest increases, wasn't it? And the affective and behavioral domains showed less marked increases. Yes, that is exactly what Peter said, yes. And that, if I may say, uh, speaks to, uh, that's encouraging because at least it says we can make change or we can influence change, but we probably need to look at additional ways of doing that. The work that we did in the 80s involved, among other things, a buddy system where volunteer children, children who were interested in becoming a buddy to a child with a disability in their school, were randomly assigned to be a buddy or to be a control child. And we found some quite interesting and important changes in attitudes among the children who had the buddy experience. But as I comment in the commentary, the difference between our work and Emmanuel's is that our work involved children who were volunteers, and we showed that among a volunteer group, the exposure does make a difference. Emmanuel's looking at the whole population, so she's taken on a much bigger challenge. But I think both of us 
should be challenged to go the next step and see what it is that we can do to help able-bodied children become more effective citizens and friends or at least colleagues of children with disabilities. In the light of that, what do you think about the fact that the children who are at schools with a special education unit actually had lower scores? I think one main point about that is that the typical children are not aware of who are the kids in those classes because there is no information, there is no dialogue around it. And what we found in our study with the qualitative part of it is that among teachers there is a lack, a complete lack of communication around disability and the teachers suffer from that. In the same time, those who are in the special unit education and those who are in the mainstream classes that would have to host, so to say, the, the disabled kids, they don't talk about it, so they're really scared about it. And I think they give their fears to the children. Our main point, our main findings, and what we try to enforce at regional level is that we need to, to talk and we need to work with adults because if the adults have a more clear vision of what disability is and what those kids in those special units are, then it will make it easier for kids to have a regular relationship, so to say, between those who belong to those special units and those who are in the other classes. I would add to that, that without knowing any of the details of how things are done in Toulouse or, or elsewhere, that the nature of the special classes, whether they are in the middle of the school, for example, or down at one end, whether the children in the special classes have opportunities to participate in some school activities, all of those things would make a huge difference to the understanding of the teachers, as Emmanuel says, and the students about children with special needs. If, for example, these are not only segregated classes, but physically segregated, mm. then they might as well be in another building, in another planet. And so one has to look at, and there may be an opportunity in Emmanuel's data to do some secondary looking at this, if, if you haven't already done so, were there differences from one school to another where there were segregated classes with respect to how those classes were situated and how the children were engaged. Because there may be differences within those uh, programs that would give us a hint as to what are the factors that could be important. Yes, yeah, so I have two points to add on that comment. First, and I forgot to say, in France, kids in special units are kids with cognitive disorders or psychiatric disorders, and those are the disabilities that are the more uh, negatively stigmatized yes. by everybody. Yes. So this is one reason why we find less positive attitudes in schools that have those special units, because in those classes are kids with cognitive dysfunction and, and psychiatric disorders. But we had as well in our research study an anthropologist that looked at what went on in the schools. And, uh -huh. and she found things really interesting around discrimination and physical uh, segregation of, of those kids. And, for example, in one of the schools, all the kids during lunch break would go and play sports. But the kids from the special units would have to stay 
in another part of the school for their safety. <laughs> so they were denied the, the possibility to join the others to play sports for their sake, but this is not what inclusive education is about. So we have to be really careful as what we do as adults because else we are giving the kids completely contradictory messages and we are misleading both groups of kids, the able bodies and the others. Yeah, interesting point. We we are disadvantaging your last point is that we are disadvantaging or potentially disadvantaging both groups. And this for a good reason. For a good reason in on our perspective as adults, because it is for their safety. Yeah, but if it's if it's a policy rather than based on individual situations, then the policy could be challenged. In preparing for this discussion, I was thinking about the work that Fauconnier and colleagues published, I think, last year on differences in participation rates among children in different countries. This is part of the uh, surveillance of cerebral palsy in Europe work that Alan Culver has been doing. And there are really substantial differences from one country to another, almost certainly related to various policies, uh, which include inclusionary opportunities for children with disabilities. So that speaks to some of what you're talking about as well with respect to how the system works and what opportunities there are at the level of policy to make it easier or to make it more challenging for children to have exposure to other children with differences. Before we get on to where to go next, you might think, can I just ask one other thing? Emmanuel, did you want to mention anything about bullying as well? That was another another research we made linked to the HBSC international study. We looked at the bullying rate among kids who state that they have either a chronic condition or a disability. And we found both in France and Ireland that such kids have rates almost twice as high of being bullied when they are disabled. And the, the most severe the disability, the, the, the higher the rates. And this holds true in France and Ireland, France being a country where the bullying is high and Ireland being a country where bullying is low. So we found this really interesting, and it goes well with what we found on the other research. You want to comment on that, Peter? Well, again, I think it would be very interesting to link these two themes by seeing, in a sociological sense, whether the people who are doing, if we could look at the attitudes of the people who are doing the bullying, we would assume that they are less positive. And again, in, in, in a perfect world where we could do longitudinal studies, if we had ways of enhancing attitudes, we could look at whether that changed bullying rates and try to link the behavior, the bullying behavior, to particular aspects of the children's lives that we might be able to uh, influence in some way. And I think these, these are very interesting and clearly very closely connected themes that uh, Emmanuel and her group are pursuing. That really comes to the last theme, which is that, first of all, the intervention didn't show any benefit, and second, that although there was a change over the year, and that was statistically significant, it didn't appear to be a very big change, at least to an outsider. Would that be fair to say that? 
the improvement, Emmanuel. Um, it was, it seemed to be one to two points. It could be that the reason why we didn't find any effect is that because we had such a strong design of our study that maybe some others found effect where they wouldn't have if they would have followed all the requirements for intervention studies. Yes, but more meaning that if the intervention didn't work and the change that there was didn't appear very big, what can we do now to try and do better? Well, what we did is from the findings, we we have tried to improve our program. And what we found uh, relevant from those findings of the two research programs is that for it to work, it needs to be made an institutional priority and not left to a teacher to decide on, you know, how important it's going to be in his class. We found that we need to work with adults because they do have a strong impact on the children's attitude. We decided as well to broaden our intervention around differences in living together because it would make disability one topic among others, and uh, we think this would be better, more efficient. And we thought as well that we needed to have a broader range of tools and actions to provide to the teachers so that all kids, whatever their level, whatever their will to work on disability, could find one that would be suitable for them. And then because we found in our qualitative part of the study that the teachers you know, weren't really confident on working on that topic. We have offered them at regional level the help of a trained person that can go and do the action on disability, and we offer them some training at institutional level where they can have two days to learn how to work on disability and citizenship. And last, we have found from different pilots we made that there is really positive expectation from involving disabled kids in the action itself at one point or the other. So with all those things in mind, we have implemented a more sophisticated and ambitious program. And we hope that next year it's going to be enforced over all the whole region and that data we can evaluate it. There is a related issue which response to your comment, Peter, about the change, the statistical change, and and it's a question that's been asked of us in many areas of our work where we have developed measures, and that is, what does a change of X points on a measure mean? And I will be critical of our own work, but I will say that that's a systemic challenge. If we find a statistically significant difference between this and that, we get excited. But we're often not sure what a two-point difference on a 10-point scale means, for example. And I think that that's another area of work that needs to be done not only in attitudes research, but quite frankly in almost all of what we do in clinical services, to link a change in score at the individual level and at the population level to some functional and understandable outcome. Uh, it may well be that, that a change at, at the population level of a couple of points it has important implications because, of course, it's spread out over a very large population. But we need to continue to, to explore these questions of the link between measured change 
on on paper and pencil tests or clinical tests, and what does it mean in the real world? Big challenges, big opportunities for research. Anything you'd like to say as well? One other thing that goes together with what Peter said is that what we found is that even if the improvement is small, it was bigger in those who have the less high scores. Mm-hmm. So that's quite good to know because those who yep. have the less positive attitudes are those who are improving the most. So that's good. Yes, that's very encouraging. <laughs> I think the whole thing's very encouraging. It's just that there's still some work to do, which may also be encouraging. <laughs> okay, well, I, we've come to the end of our time. Is there anything else very important to mention? Uh, I, I would that? just ask Emmanuel whether she and her group are going to be continuing to pursue these uh, these themes. I would say yes. We are involved as well in this Sparkle group. So we are involved in school participation with the kids with cerebral palsy, yeah. which is linked to that. And, and plus, because we are going to enforce a new improved program, I would really like to evaluate some part of it and with more qualitative work. But yeah. this only if I find money. <laughs> <laughs> One of the perennial challenges in research. But I think if we can find young learners in many disciplines who are looking for career opportunities, this is clearly one of them because children with disabilities live at home, grow up in the community, and there are huge opportunities to understand better how to enhance their life quality and the life quality of the rest of the citizens. Indeed. Do you still work on that? We do not. Now, we we have moved into other areas. We're doing a lot of work with parents now, not Uh specifically about attitudes. But I'm excited, as I said at the beginning, I'm excited by how much interest has appeared in the last few years about attitudes uh, and attitudes research. Yes, showing how challenging and important it is as well for the children. Anyway, we have come to the end of our time, so thank you very much indeed. I think this has been very, very interesting. And Of course, for us in medicine, it's often easy to forget that children actually spend a lot of their lives at school, so trying to help the environment for them there is very, very important. I think this conversation and discussion will also help put the article in context for people listening. Can I just add a reminder that the article is Improving Attitudes Towards Children with Disabilities in a School Context by Godot et al. in the October issue.